Welcome to School of Movies. Highlander. Because you were born different, men will fear you, try to drive you away. I am Connor McCloud. This is a rather special and unique show. You see, we've already recorded a podcast on Highlander back during the Obama administration in early 2016. (laughs) We even talked about the upcoming new all-female Ghostbusters movie with great speculation, and I've already edited that show. We've had the exact same guests, Neil Taylor, the kid dog. Hello, Neil. Hello again. And Jesse Ferguson of the Recorded Tomorrow Time Travel Podcast. Hello, Jesse. Hello, hello. Thing is, I edited that show last week and I decided that it wasn't of the high quality that we usually command. Not high enough to release on our main feed. It is meandering and unfocused. It doesn't make the most use of the film's strong points. And this is almost entirely down to me. Alex, because for some reason I insisted on synopsizing as we go as though to an audience who has never even heard of Highlander and I almost sounded embarrassed to be recording about it when I shouldn't be. That is not the way you approach this film. Uh, These guys here were not to blame for that show being a bit lame and they have graciously agreed to return three years later because when it comes to Highlander, the one thing we know for certain is that it doesn't matter how many times they keep repeating that tagline of theirs, there can only ever be more than one. (laughs) So, if you're on our Patreon at the $5 level and you'd like to listen to that show that never happened, that alternate episode on Highlander, it will be available next week. But this second go, three years later, is the real deal. This time, I am going to synopsize at the beginning, bringing everyone up to speed, and we can just launch into it with gusto. And of the hour and 45 minutes from that original recording, I have salvaged the best 45 minutes, which I will intersperse with this show. The other hour will be on that bonus show, along with 40 additional minutes of footage of us talking about the Highlander sequels. So wait, what you're saying is, where the renegade cut? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of? It's just that the renegade cut didn't make things better. Next week will be a Highlander 2 show, a terrible movie, regardless of which edit you watch. But conversely, the show that we recorded back in 2016 turned out to be huge fun. So that's the one we're going to try to match tonight to give you a tasty pair of podcasts, whether you've seen the films or not. That was the show where we talked about Highlander 3, Highlander 4 and the terrible Highlander 5, which, as I said, you'll find on the bonus episode. We couldn't get a full podcast out of them when we are absolutely definitely not doing any of the other media. So until a potential remake, this is it for our Highlander coverage. These two shows. There can only be two. So let me start with a synopsis and then put that one to bed and we can talk about the film. New York, 1986, and a mysterious man named Russell Nash watches wrestling in Madison Square Garden. It sounds like a wrestler's name, doesn't it? Russell Nash. Russell Nash. And he goes to a car park alone, meets a man named Fazil, and they fight spectacularly with swords. Russell cuts off his attacker's head and receives a powerful burst of energy from the corpse. 
The police catch Russell Nash, but they have to let him go on lack of evidence. A metallurgist who works with the police named Brenda, fascinated by the sword she found at the crime scene, pursues him and they get involved. Turns out Russell Nash is an immortal named Connor MacLeod, born in 1518 Glenfinnan, Scotland, making him 468 years old. We see Connor mortally wounded in a battle between his kilt-wearing clan and that of the Frasers. But despite hovering at death's door for days, he survives. His town cast him out, believing him to have the devil inside, and he lives for a time as a blacksmith in the Highlands with a woman named Heather. He is tracked down by Ramirez, an Egyptian, who explains why Connor didn't die before, and in fact he won't ever die unless someone immortal, like the two of them, severs his head from his body and absorbs his power. Egyptian, (laughs) air quotes. Connor learns to be a good fighter and a better person in general from Ramirez, who tells him to leave his wife to spare her the pain of growing old, whilst he, Connor, remains in his 20s. They can never have children and he can never lead a normal life. Ramirez is then hunted down by an evil hulking monster of an immortal named the Kurgan, who, not coincidentally, was the one who mortally wounded Connor during the battle. The Kurgan kills Ramirez and leaves. Connor, who was away when his mentor was slain, does not leave Heather, and we see her grow old and die childless, causing them both great pain, just as Ramirez warned. Back in 1986, New York, the Kurgan turns up again and kidnaps Brenda, just as she and Connor were getting close. Since they are the only two immortals left alive, the Kurgan wants to duel and get the prize, which is all the stored-up energy and magic remaining inside Connor combined with his own. This would make him supremely powerful and a threat to the whole world. Connor tracks him down, they fight, Connor wins and gets the prize, and gets the girl. Then, in his head, Ramirez tells Connor he can now grow old and have children. The very definite end. There were four sequels, a TV show, a lesser-known TV show called The Raven, an animated series introducing little kids to decapitation for fun and profit, and an anime. They are all bad, especially by today's (laughs) standards, though they have their fans, especially of the first live-action TV show we have one on this very podcast. But we're not going to talk about any of that right now, just Highlander 1986. So we're going to start off by talking about the first thing that hits you as an audience, the Queen soundtrack.
This is quite possibly my favourite Queen album. Mm-hmm. You've and been listening to A Kind of Magic. I've been listening to A Kind of Magic, and I was... In a childish kind of way, I was a huge Queen fan as a kid, and this was effectively why. It's not their first um, movie they scored either, is it? Because they did Flash Gordon as well. Flash Flash Gordon's the first, and and this is the second. And this is where they go, nail, hammer, right on the head. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing. If you watch the documentary stuff... Uh, on the uh, special edition Blu-ray, uh, you've got a lot of like the, you know, the director, producer, the the writer, all talking in very very serious tones about this, you know, what they were trying to make, and you know, this very serious story, and what they're saying, the tone they're trying to hit, does not fit really with the film we're presented with. The film is so much fun. And, you know, it's very melodramatic in places, but it's, like, full-throated, like, you know, just throwing itself into it. I suppose the, the modern-day equivalent would be something like maybe Thor, but as in the original Thor, but that, even that has more of a knowing wink. Maybe Thor the Dark World. Mm. Mm. Did I, Only not sucky. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the, the intriguing thing about this film, and possibly one of the reasons why it drew my attention quite so much when I first started watching it on TV, whenever it was on TV... Mm is that it, there, there are two films going on here. Yeah. And there's a really <laughs> weird kind of tone dissonance where they meet in the middle. Yeah, there is. And it's fascinating. It actually doesn't make it bad. It makes it incredible, but in a really weirdly bad way. It makes it, like, I can understand why it didn't make money mm. the first time around. Absolutely, because people would look at this and go, I, I don't know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Marketers these days would have no clue. But remember, it was the mid-80s. They were like, okay, so sci-fi, fantasy, can we do this? Can we do this on very, very low budgets? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I think... Honestly, and you know, I'm saying marketers wouldn't know what to do with it these days, but it's not a million miles from the tone of the MCU. It, and I'm not saying on any level that it's anywhere near as good as the MCU. Uh, but in terms of ridiculous, over-the-top fantasy melodrama combined with some really authentic human interaction. Hmm. If it wasn't so incredibly grisly requiring decapitations, Disney could probably do it. <laughs> Yes. It's, it's 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 a romp. Yes, romp is good. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say swashbuckling because it's not quite, but mm. it's definitely a romp. I'm going for romp. It is also oh, moody and posturing. So you've oh, got yeah. um, uh, Christophe Lambert uh, wandering around dressed like a Parisian gentleman in a trench coat, looking really like Kyle Reese. And he looks Russell- like a flasher for some of this. <laughs> he really does. So did Kyle Reese. I have in my notes, what was it with the early 80s and putting your hero in a shitty, grubby trench coat? Honestly, I just think that Russell Mulcahy watched The Terminator, fell in love with the aesthetic... And so he made the Kurgan, the Terminator, and Connor, Kyle Reese. Mm. And it has that same kind of, uh, like, super melodramatic tone to it at times. But it has what the Terminator, the first Terminator doesn't have, which is intense silliness as well. Yeah. Which is, that's why it doesn't balance properly. But again, I, I love the imbalance. Absolutely. And the, the thing that kind of alerts you to this at first is if you if we just bypass the whole wrestling sequence um the the fact that you have a man wielding an ancient japanese sword while wearing a belted trench coat and bright white trainers oh the whitest of sneakers <laughs> it just looks so wrong it was the it 80s so they right. they wore white sneakers and and uh, drain pipe jeans oh absolutely yeah high tops yes 
And uh, yeah, so uh, the sword fighting, which is one of the first things you get after the, the, the operatic queen intro, and then this. Closely followed up with a score that sounds like a piano falling down the stairs. What? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite messy. But in, in, in a kind of way where they're like, dude, we're saying something here with this, you know, like uh, wrestling is the modern day pugilistic equivalent of, uh, of, of battle. That's, that's what we get, all of these roaring barbarian crowds, which was filmed at a real wrestling match because, I mean, again, I, I like it when you can shave money off and get it to feel authentic by not arranging 10,000 extras in a room to pretend they're watching wrestling. Just actually go there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And just for fun, that's the free birds in the ring. Yeah, fabulous free birds. Um, but the sword fighting was uh, overseen by Bob Anderson, who is one of the premier. Like while he was alive, he was probably the guy, I'd say, uh, for uh, for coordinating and uh, getting your sword fights to look both spectacular and feel authentic. Uh, he worked on uh, the Star Wars films, more significantly Empire and Jedi, where the f- sword fights looked considerably better. He stood in as the stunt double for Darth Vader. He was the fencing instructor for The Princess Bride. I believe he was the fencing instructor for Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. He was the sword master for Fellowship of the Ring and Parts of the Two Towers and Return of the King. Oh, uh, Barry Lyndon as well. Oh, and the Three Musketeers film from 1993 that came out just after Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and they were kind of trying to replicate that formula. The one with Kiefer Sutherland and Oliver Platt. Really, when you, when you look back on almost everything which involved swords throughout the 20th century on film, that was really standout. Oh, forgot, Mask of Zorro was <laughs> overseen by him. He was, he was amazing. We, we met him briefly once. We got a signed photo at a, a convention. I was like, now this, this is actually really worth something to me. It was a, it was a pleasure to meet the guy. But there's, there's a meatiness to the way they fight. There's not too much posturing, although this old Polish gentleman, Fazil, uh, does do an inordinate number of backflips. He really does. <laughs> so, yeah. Again, the, the juxtaposition of old Japanese sword and bright mm. white trainers, and then you have man in, like, slightly podgy man in his 50s in a business suit doing backflips in a car park. Yeah. But like, there's a meatiness to the blows. They're like they're smashing at each other with these swords. That, uh, but there's a uh, an elegance as well. And, and it sort of threw me off a little bit. Was that they all seemed, as you said, they seemed very meaty. They seemed very real. Like these people were actually trying to kill each other. Mm. But at the same time, they fluctuated between feeling like the participants were highly skilled and also some of them felt like they had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> uh, like these 500-year-old people that have been sword fighting their entire lives don't understand how, you know, how to plant your feet or how to actually, you know, use one of these weapons that they're actively trying to basically bludgeon somebody to death with. Yeah. Do you know how to use that thing? Pointy and goes into the other man. Obviously and then, you know, in the very next scene, they would feel like highly trained, really, really skilled pugilists. It was it was a weird juxtaposition that kind of threw me out a couple of times. I mean, it's the 80s. How often do you get to sword fight? I mean, <laughs> you know, you That's don't use you it, just, you lose it. You think they're just rusty? Yes. <laughs> There is, a, uh, there is a neat kind of, uh, like, it's very kind of cyberpunky 80s in that they're, they're fighting in a car park with these outlandish swords, and uh, the music's all sort of grungy and, again, very Terminator-like. 
but there's very few words exchanged. So it's just for zeal wait. And everything else is visual storytelling. You can pretty much get that this guy is very solitary and furtive, uh, goes to see wrestling, isn't particularly impressed by it, leaves, goes to the car park. The only thing he says when he meets the guy is that, well, it would appear he, they know each other. They're going to fight anyway. There's some low level of uh, honor between the two of them. And then when Fazil gets his head removed, the resultant burst of energy makes all the car's hubcaps fall off and windscreens explode as, as Connor goes, Aah! for one of the many, many quickenings in this series. And but- all the quickenings in this movie were vastly different and just weird. Hmm. Yeah. Did, like, in, in future, like, moving on in further movies and in the series, they kind of got into the more specific lightning splatting around and making things explode Mm. uh, theme. But in this, they're so variant. They're ranging from cars exploding to lightning licking across the ground to, you know, gas eruptions from the sewers to the very end, which I don't even know if we want to describe here. or I'm I'm holding it back to talk about that last bit uh, near the end, actually. Yeah. It's it's worth talking about, and uh, uh, specifically because Christophe Lambert has to be the one at most of these quickenings and he mm-hmm. his overreaction is is one of the things that sells the movie <laughs> when a highlander bites it it's never a pretty sight no two bloodsuckers go the same way some yell and scream some go quietly some explode some implode but all will try to take you with them anyway so russell nash after beheading Fazil hides his sword and tries to escape the car park, but gets cornered by the police and taken in. And we meet a charming fellow called Corfiel. You ever get over to New Jersey, Nash? Not if I can help it. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. You're an antique dealer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. What's that? A sword? Wise up, smartass. It's a Toledo Salamanca broadsword worth about a million bucks. So? So you want to hear a theory? Mm-hmm. You went down that garage to buy this sword from that guy. What's his name? I don't know. You tell me. Okay. His name is Amon Fazil. And you fought about the price and cut off his head. Want to hear another theory? This Fazil was so upset about lousy wrestling tonight. He went down to the garage and in a fit of depression cut off his own head. That's not funny, Walt. It's important to note, by the way, the police trailing Nash, aside from getting Brenda to meet him, this thread goes nowhere. They even resurrect that thread in Highlander 3, and again it goes nowhere. The police can't get a Highlander. Sharon, do you want to do a hero's journey on Highlander, by the way, while we're going? For which part? The whole thing or just whole for his, for when he's young? I don't know, because it, it sort of it spaces it out. It's an unusual journey because it takes so many years. Yeah. I, I suppose you could argue that it kind of does the, the looping effect mm. that the best heroes' journeys do, where they keep going back on themselves. Well, um, there's the denial of the call happens twice. Once where he's like, ah, oh, you know, just because I came back to life doesn't mean that you need to reject me like this. And the next mm-hmm. is when uh, Ramirez tries to convince him he's a Highlander. Uh, yes. Sorry, he's. <laughs> it's really <laughs> hard. Fell into that trap. <laughs> it's really hard not to call <laughs> immortals Highlanders. Right. You have to become a Highlander by being bitten by a Highlander. <laughs> Preferably a radioactive Highlander. <laughs> yes. Prepare to be immortal. 
You gotta chuck them off a cliff? Shake, we could have chucked them off the roof and stayed at home. No, this is a magic cliff here, like in the Highlander. So you will become the Highlander, and you'll roam the Earth forever trying to kill yourself. But you won't be able to, because you'll be immortal. Won't that suck, little man? <laughs> right, so that sounds kind of cool. Yeah, it does. Well, I don't know what to do. No, you're not. I'm doing it. Shake, wait. The Highlander was just a movie, I mean... Oh, Frylock, The Highlander was a documentary, and the events happened in real time. So this cliff is magic? Oh, yeah. Big time. I'm doing it now. No, man, look, you gotta be born a Highlander. You can't just become one. See, he saw the movie, too. Well, well, that's right. I know I saw cliffs, okay? And there was lots of magic everywhere. And Mel Gibson. Braveheart, hello? Oh, you think you're the expert? Let's see how much your ass knows about flying. Let's go back in time to when Connor gets chucked out of his village. The burn, get rid of him bit. When the townspeople are trying to eject him. I was like... When I watched it this time, you guys have all definitely seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? But it, yeah. but it feels like Russell Mulcahy hasn't. So it's like no. he doesn't get why this is actually hilarious and it's supposed to be sad. You've the devil in you. We've been kinsmen 20 years. Connor McLeod was my kinsman. I don't know who you are. Angus, you better go, Connor. I'm not going anywhere. Which may we burn, huh? Who do you know she is a witch? She looks like one! There'll be no burning here today! We'll banish him! No! Banish him! There's a fair cop. Accident, you know, because we've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which lambasts all this sort of sword and sorcery stuff that took itself way too seriously. I can't take it seriously because you're mm. like, this is true. I'm just waiting for some. I'm just actually waiting for someone to just come along with, like, you know, the um, some lights to be passing on the way to Camelot or something. <laughs> I'm sick of the court, so let's not go to Camelot. This is a silly place. <laughs> Connor McLeod turned me into a newt. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was gonna say, you were dead, Connor. I got better. Yeah. <laughs> Very, Very nice. Good. Very good. Yeah. I, I think what I really like about the these early flashbacks is the way it kind of lays out the stall for how Connor is going to grow into a better person because of Ramirez. Mm. It's you get kind of that there's the rough and tough camaraderie of him him and his uh, clansmen as he's going into battle. There's obviously, I mean, I don't really know if you can call it toxic masculinity in 1500s Scotland. Just being a man. It's, it's just, it, yeah, it just is. But there's all this sort of, you know, they're joking with each other about peeing their kilts going into battle. And <laughs> there's a very personal sense of, of war in it. The fact that, because one of the things. I think you, you could call it toxic masculinity because when Connor's on his own, mm. you don't get any of that shit. It's just him and, uh, and Heather. And then when he's with. Uh, Ramirez. Ramirez doesn't take any guff from him, so no. it kind of falls. He tries. On, yeah. He tries to pull it out when Ramirez first turns up, but mm. we'll we'll come to that later. How would they know when the Kurgan say says to them, "Don't go after him. He's mine." How would they know which one it is? But he says to them, "There's one called Connor." 
you leave him be, he's mine. So, like, you're fighting in this big gang of men and everybody knows each other by first name. It's really personal and it just seems like, I don't know, guys having a scrap after a football match or something, except that by the end of it, 25% of them are dead. Yeah. You get the societal expectation, which is that Connor is supposed to go out bravely with his friends and get stabbed and die. And when he doesn't do that, he breaks the program. Mm. It was, you know, everybody loses their minds. Absolutely, yeah. But it's, it is very grim. There's no sense of there being much honour to this death. There's people being drowned in puddles and stabbed mm. by priests. And mm-hmm. Yeah. It's about an eighth of a brave heart. And in case you're wondering, no, that is not the last time that Christophe Lambert makes very inappropriate sex noises at very inappropriate moments of the Highlander series. It is, however, worth pointing out that the Kurgan's armour for this scene is fucking awesome. He's got this saber-toothed tiger skull on and, like, horsehair sables hanging off him. This crazy glove where the only finger is the middle finger. And he wears variations of it throughout the film. But here seems to be the only place where the Kurgan is fully in control. When he turns up to kill Ramirez, he looks drunk. And after a brief spell as a very together Terminator in 1986, he goes, apropos of nothing, bat shit mental. And I don't invoke the Terminator lightly. Russell Mulcahy is clearly in love with that film. And understandably so. And there's like bits of the score that pretty much just go, boop, 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 boop. With like shots of him sort of walking through hallways and like staying in seedy motels, much like the Terminator. And uh, you know, he's he's nine feet tall and built of brick shit. Flips the sword around a bit, so we know he's still got a sword. Oh, that sword is so cool though. It, it when he's putting it together, it takes it opens up the suitcase and it's yeah. in a bunch of pieces and he's just sliding it in. Yeah, if you're, if you're a young boy in the early 90s, that's the best sword ever. Right. A, a grotty hooker turns up, and uh, <laughs> uh, we don't find out what happens there, but clearly he has his way with her, and, and she survives, because otherwise the hotel guy wouldn't say, hey, Candy said you were kind of freaky, or something Kinky. like that. Kinky. Christ knows what he did to Candy, if Candy said he was quite kinky. <laughs> Hi. I'm Candy. Of course you are. Clancy Brown has such a great presence in this movie. Just, Mm. he's, up at this point, I don't think he's said more than five lines. Mm. I think my favorite line is, Mom! Mom! We'll we'll come to that in a bit, but, uh, yeah, he doesn't say that to Candy. Um, (laughs) But uh, Maybe he does. Maybe Maybe that was the king. Oh! (laughs) There's how you deepen the Kurgan. He just misses his mommy. Here I am. I'm the master of your destiny. I am the one, the only one. I am the god of kingdom come. Give me the prize. Just give me the prize.
Yeah, he gets uh, cast out by his horrible village, apart from uh, poor Dougal, who uh, didn't want him to be uh, thrown out, but uh, the voice of reason gets drowned out in shrieking. Mm. Uh, Dougal does save him from death. Yeah, he saves him from actually being burned. burned. And drowned and weighed against a duck. Uh, so so he's, he spends some time with Heather. And the thing we didn't really talk about before, we just sort of breezed right past it. And it was me. It was my stupid fault. We didn't really talk about Ramirez. We, so let's talk now about Sean Connery and how he suddenly elevates this film. Like, it's, it's very <laughs> melodramatic. And then he turns up with all of that charm. Greetings. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain, and I'm at your service. Who? The moment he's on screen, the film becomes better and you enjoy it more, and it's much more light-hearted, mainly because he spends most of the time uh, knocking uh, Connor off his feet Mm. and um, telling him he smells like a dung heap. And he's colourful (laughs) as well, and that's that's important in this, because it's very grey and it's quite dismal when Ramirez is not on screen. So when he turns up in his red velvet doublet and hose, it's like, oh... The sun has arrived, or something yeah. like that. It's just, it's cheery. I kind of feel like uh, Ramirez or Sean Connery in this movie is sort of analogous to Alan Rickman in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, in the sense that he may have been the only person on set who understood what this movie was. Yeah. Mm. That makes sense. He's not taking it seriously, uh, and right. that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, there are times when he does, yeah. but most of the time, it's all um, he, he's not taking it seriously and having fun with it. Yeah, like mm-hmm. say League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where he's clearly not having any fun. Yeah, when Connery's <laughs> he's pissed off out in that movie. Yeah. yeah, but because he's not taking it seriously, the scenes where he does need to take it seriously strike harder because of that and have more weight yeah Absolutely. and there's a nice conflict between mentor and, and student as well which is always great fun to watch and you watch this sort of you know young person flail about while the uh, older lion runs rings around him yeah and plus the fact it's it, again it's outlining how connor changes over time at this point he's what i've described here as dumbass machismo personified because mm. <laughs> he hasn't learned much from his stupid village exactly but the way right. it comes across is that it's naive it's his youth, it's his lack of experience, it's the fact that the only people he's ever known so far are his big hairy relatives. Mm. And Ramirez turns up and opens his eyes to all sorts of different things. This combination of Ramirez's training and the sheer passage of time is going to beat this mm. attitude out of him. Somebody said on Twitter that uh, the, uh, Christophe Lambert was quite possibly the worst actor who ever lived, and I was like, uh, honestly... Nah. What what makes for a really bad actor? This one could go on for a long time, but I was weighing it. Adam is it, Sandler? Is it just somebody who's annoying like Adam Sandler or, or, or Larry the Cable Guy? Someone that you just want off the screen? Or is it someone who's boring like Jason Clark? That you're just like, okay, fine, Jason. Could, could you go away and be replaced by a better actor? Because um, that's a bad actor. Someone who just bores you. Or is it someone who 
you just don't believe in the role. So, for example, Christophe Lambert, manifestly French. And so the juxtaposition of him saying, I am a Scottish, you're Spanish peacock, to Sean Connery, who says, I'm not Spanish, I'm Egyptian. And you're like, I've gone to cuckoo land. <laughs> <laughs> you have to admit, though, that is part of the charm of it. Yeah. You've got a French, a Scottish French and a, a Scottish Egyptian. It does make him seem, them both seem a little out of their place and out of their time, like, you know... Uh, I was the only Scotsman who spoke like this. <laughs> His Scottish accent when he's in Scotland as a young man is... It's not good. I'll bloody not, well run out of here. It's not horrendous. It's a, he sounds <laughs> almost completely French by the time he's in 1986. But he's, he's got quite a range at least in this film because yeah. he plays naive Connor he he plays learning Connor he plays anguished Connor mm-hmm. he plays very solitary and alone Connor who's just got a wall up and doesn't want to let anyone in he plays occasionally jovial Connor whenever he's with uh, Castigier or um, drunk and in that fencing match with that guy who's he said <laughs> his wife was a bloated warthog or something like that astoundingly <laughs> funny and it really shouldn't be that scene yeah um, I, th- I think for me in terms of, of what constitutes a bad actor it's not necessarily that they can't convince me of the role but if they can't sell me the story Mm. that's the point at which I'm just checking out and going I might as well not be watching this I think he specifically worked with a linguist to try to come up with an accent that sounded like someone who had lived all over the world lots Mm. of different places yeah right the, Russell Mulcahy was a uh, Australian director who had done the Duran Duran music videos. And there are times in this film where he is ideally suited to the uh, material. Specifically, the, the final fight at the end looks amazing. Oh, yeah. You know, for, for the budget that they had. What they've got, it's really good. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the period stuff, it's, it's good enough. It's, it's convincing enough. There's, like, if you watch carefully on the Blu-ray now, the bit with the, uh, the little castle that he and Heather live in, it's like, oh, so there's the little castle, and there's the bit they drew on top of it. It's like a matte painting. The bit that always makes me laugh is the underwater bit, when uh, Ramirez dumps Connor into the lake. Yeah. I don't like boats. I don't like water. I'm a man, not a fish. So you complain and... You look like a woman, you stupid haggis. Haggis? What is haggis? Sheep stomach stuffed with meat and barley. And what do you do with it? You eat it. How revolting. Be still, for God's sake. You'll tip us over. So? I cannot swim, you Spanish peacock. I'm not Spanish. I'm Egyptian. You said you were from Spain. You're a liar. You have the manners of a goat. And you smell like a dung heap. And you have no knowledge whatsoever of your potential. Now! Get out! No! Strangely enough, that's also a moment of sheer joy when he realises he isn't going to drown and Connor starts having fun. Mm. Mm-hmm. Also, side note, by the way, the trans- transition to that scene where they, they it goes from a fish tank in 1986 to the loch and it just sort of comes up from the water and suddenly... That, that's seamless. I still can't tell where, how, how they did that. Mm. There are loads of really ambitious transitions in this and some of them work and some of them don't, but mm. they are all interesting. And I mean that in the correct sense of the term. The flashbacks are actually the most fun, but that's probably because they're not grimy. Yeah. Because like you say, in in the modern setting, 
because it's 80s New York is very grim, dirty and grimy, and Scotland's so bright and colourful. Yeah. And so is the, the, again, that hilarious bit with the, the duel, the drunken duel. I, I Just bringing that back because it made me laugh again. Mm. It's so funny. Shoot him, sir, shoot him. But um, <laughs> there's only one flashback where you could go, ooh, that's a bit dark, and it's still kind of colourful, which is when it cuts to World War Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also involves uh, shooting Nazis whilst sniggering, and uh, any film that does that, I'm fine with. <laughs> Don't be afraid. What's your name? Rachel. What happened? Everybody's dead. Shh. I'm like you, I'm alone. Come with me, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you say, Jack, you're the master race. Keep the change, you filthy animal. So yeah, uh, Ramirez turns up, and this is obviously the he's both herald and uh, mentor, uh, where he uh, basically tells this blunt instrument of a man, you're an immortal, you're a, we are brothers, McLeod. Now, on paper... Why does Ramirez find and train Connor? Why doesn't he just chop his head off straight away? Because it'd be so easy. I have an answer for that. I know. So go for it. It's uh, he explains it at the end of the movie. And it has to do with the gathering when all of the immortals come together for their one big final blowout. And the whoever is the last one gains this ultimate power and the implication is that they can effectively rule the world that way. And because he cares about humanity, he wants to make sure that the good immortals are the ones in the best position to do that. Because if the Kurgan becomes the last, then the entire world is going to be shrouded in darkness and it's going to be an evil tyrant. So rather than just take Connor's head, he's trying to train him so that in the event that the last one isn't Ramirez, he's hoping that it's going to be Connor or one of the other good immortals that he's trained. It's important to note, by the way, that in in all sequels and the TV show, Connor doesn't receive anything that would let him rule the world. In the in Highlander Two, he just becomes mortal and grows old, and then helps uh, the. Uh, I suppose he is in a position to be able to help do a thing but he could have done the thing with his accumulated knowledge anyway except that the implication at the end of the at the end of this movie which we're jumping way ahead now Mm -hmm. but when he becomes the one he suddenly can hear everyone's thoughts so he Mm -hmm. knows what everyone is thinking and what everyone is doing which puts him in an interesting position of being able to combine pieces from other people to make these breakthroughs and to essentially becomes the ultimate collaboration tool. Um, And the implication is that it was that power that allowed him 
to effectively save the world before the second movie starts. Uh, keep the second movie out of it, but yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's I, 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 started, I started this by saying, well, in the second in the movie, in the third, which ignores the second movie, in the fourth, which ignores the second movie. But and it, the third. And it, it, it seems to have no acknowledgement that Connor is particularly more powerful after this than he was here. Or you know, the, the more connected and, and could use his powers for anything. It's kind of by the by what this prize is. It's a just a really elemental um, way of looking at things. Connor encounters two immortals uh, in his early life, and one of them tries to kill him immediately to gain his power. The other one tries to train him simply because it, it, it they're two different people with two different outlooks on life. One of them wants to accumulate power for himself. The other one has spent a long time feeling isolated from humanity and just wants to cooperate and be friends and have com- company. And it's the difference between taking everything for yourself and sharing things. Just two different outlooks. Nice way of boiling it down for me. Mm-hmm. Strategically speaking, uh, you're right. The R- Ramirez is also just trying to make sure that uh, Connor's, you know, fit for purpose for when uh, the Kurgan comes calling because he's going to come again. And he does. But Connor is told by Ramirez on no uncertain terms that he cannot have children. And you made a very fine point, Sharon, which is... Assuming that there is any kind of evolution or biology connected with being an immortal, if you are immortal, there is no need for you to reproduce. Because you literally don't need to leave something of yourself behind. Absolutely. If immortals just spring into being for no apparent reason if they were able to have children as well, they would continue adding to the population throughout their life superfluously. And particularly if their biology was able to be passed on, mm. the world would just get full up. But the, the, the purpose of reproduction is because a species, ultimately the individuals die, mm. and so they need to replicate. How many millions of years do you think would elapse before their biology caught up to the fact that they keep chopping each other's heads off? Well, there is that. Well, I mean, think, if you think about it, the, the Kurgan it appears to be the oldest of them. Mm-hmm. And he's, what did we establish, 3,000 3, years old? 3,000 years. And all that right. wisdom he's acquired over the years. Yeah. <laughs> it would appear that the, um, uh, the uh. violent nature <laughs> of their existence actually kind of undermines this whole immortal thing if they can't actually sustain themselves for more than 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. Unless there's one somewhere that just never has anything to do with anybody and therefore has survived for like that's, millennia. That's another thing. You know, they, they never really explored this properly. In the TV show, was there ever an immortal who had lived for a million years or just like for a, such a long time of human existence that it just it beggared belief? Not a million years, but yes, you do actually meet uh, the so-called or what we believe is the first immortal huh? whose name, ironically enough, is Adam. Oh, very good. And what's he like? Uh, he's very peaceful. He's pacifist. He's he's cooperative. He's one of Duncan's friends, and he helps him any way he can. To get his head chopped off? Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you're a pacifist. <laughs> hey, it's not that bad. At least he can get stuck in a cave. Yeah. It's true. Here we stand. Here we
Okay, it would appear that if a Highlander gets its head chopped off near another Highlander, then that surviving Highlander gets the first Highlander's powers. Is that, mm-hmm. that right? So yes. does that, that first Highlander have, have to have purposefully severed that head, or could it just no. have fallen off? No? Okay. So no, There's like, actually there's an episode where one of the uh, a Highlander, or an immortal, we keep saying that. I'm doing it on purpose now, though. Yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> there is an episode where an immortal commits suicide by putting his head on a train track. All right. And uh, Duncan gets his, his quickening. Right. Just because he happens to be nearby at the time. Because he's, he's the closest. Yeah. He jumps from one body to the next. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, it, it, it would appear, Sharon, that I've uh, taken a little more on board about Highlander than uh, I would have expected mm. in my writing. Right. In that case, I have a theory <laughs> okay. that the, what they call the quickening, mm-hmm. basically this energy that exists in all the immortals mm. once upon a time was one being. And it's it's all trying to basically get back together like Mercury when you put it in a tray and it then divide it up and it all runs into each other. Hence, there can so, only be one. Yeah. Indeed. And, so and basically, the gathering. They, yeah, exactly. So And that's why they can all feel each other and why they feel this pull towards mm. each other. One of the things that I always... They are a gestalt entity. Indeed, yes. One of the things I always interpret, I don't know whether this is because it's been mentioned in passing and I've just picked up on it and and kind of filed it away, but the the feeling that makes them feel ill when they come into contact with each other, Mm -hmm. I had in my head the idea that basically that's their their blood or their energy being pulled towards the other and that that extends to things like oil because that's the blood of the earth, Mm -hmm. Um, hence why all the petrol gets pulled out of the cars in the car park and why... Um, when the Kurgan um, kills Castagir in uh, New York, all like gas comes out of the pipes. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. again, that's uh, basically energy carrying stuff being pulled towards the quickening, that that's the effect that it has. But yeah, so it, if, it's, if it becomes free of the, the meat sack, if you like, that it's, it's, it's holding on to that bit of energy, it makes sense to me that it would be drawn to the nearest uh, other batch of that energy that happens to be nearby. When I think about it, this is the first time I think in a film, I, I remember seeing in a film, that portrays immortality as a bad thing, mm. as a negative, as, as this horrible thing, not this great wondrous thing, but actually just absolutely horrible that you wouldn't actually ever want. Yeah, it's true. Ultimately, all Connor really wants is just a normal life. At the end, he's overjoyed that he can just you know, have children grow old. Mm-hmm. He covets what we have and take for granted. Mm. That's kind of like Wolverine, actually. When we talked about the Wolverine, there's very much a Highlander vibe in that. Yeah. It may be something to do with reading an awful lot of um, uh, teenage vampire stories mm. when I was around that age. Teenage but, mutant uh, vampire stories? I, well, <laughs> yes, possibly. Um, but I, I honestly don't think I've ever read anything that was about immortality that didn't imply you really wouldn't want it twilight in in I, twilight okay. immortality is a thing you want you totally let want because you know let me, let me tell you what's terrifying being old <laughs> <laughs> let me rephrase my opinions on immortality are formed from all of the stuff that i read when i was younger or watched was all to do with the idea that immortality mm. is actually really exhausting uh, you riffing on the uh, Anne Rice Vampire Chronicles here. Yeah, because in my back of my head, I was hearing, Louis, Louis. 
Whining. Whining. I had to put up with that for centuries. <laughs> we should do that. So many, uh, so few vampires have the stamina for immortality. I was going to ask, actually, as a follow-up question, why are teenagers so... It, specifically teenagers suddenly become into immortals? And I'm talking vampires, elves, and highlanders. Why does it appeal to teenagers more than 20-somethings, 30-somethings, children? People are getting old, maybe. You, you joke about it, maybe that is it. That you, you, it's been a long time since I was a teenager, but you had that sense of... Ask your mind back. I'm 30, come on, I'm older than 30, but hey. Um, when you were that age, you had that sense of invulnerability. You, mm-hmm. you were godlike, you were the immortal, you were going to live forever, you were mm-hmm. going to do many things, you were going to change the world. And then you <clears> grow up and realise, no... You're not going to, well, you can do those things, but not in that sense of your, in your childhood brain. It it does move along. So yeah, that's why I, I I like sort of the, the, the Lestats and the, the Highlanders take on immortality of it. It's a curse. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's that. And and obviously we've discussed this uh, over the last few days while we've been catching up on all the Highlander stuff but I I think it's specifically it's the tension that exists in adolescence between kind of logically when you're a, a young kid at some point you learn that people die um, so you know that's a thing you know that's going to happen when you're in your teenage years it's it's almost like it's starting to sink in that one day you're going to die but you still feel like you're going to live forever. So I think it's that, it's the the process of switching from a state of the innocence of assuming that you will, you have always existed, you will always exist, to the state of um, knowing that actually, no, lots of things happened before you came along, Mm. lots of things are going to happen after you've disappeared. I suppose it's also like around about the time when you stop like being an acne-covered freak that you're like, no one's ever going to like me. If you finally get to a point where you're like, actually, I'm just about okay with how I am now. Can we just stay like this, please? It could be a metaphor for the, the death of your childhood and the implication that, well, I don't get to do whatever I want now. I'm going to have to be a grown-up and go to work and get this dreary job and wouldn't it be great if I could be this way forever this way that I am right now just frozen in time and be a teenager effectively not not necessarily a teenager but have that lack of responsibility forever also so I suppose like being a teenager and being immortal uh, very strongly linked with potential this vast limitless potential where you've reached a certain plateau where you, 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 you are going to carry on and, and then things are going to become more dead end as you sort of re- reach a point of like, right, my life is now in this holding pattern. Whereas in your, in your teens, things are always in motion. And the idea of being able to maintain that motion and keep that choice and that potential for eternity is very appealing. Okay. Didn't realize we were going to get this deep on Highland. <laughs> we just got super metaphysical. Yeah.
One of the strengths of the film, which is that it focuses on Connor rather than the concept of it, is also one of the weaknesses because I actually wanted to know more. Fazil at the beginning attacks Connor. There's no negotiation that goes on there. It's just a right, I guess we've got to do this. But when he meets a guy named Castigear later on, they're buddies and they talk about drinking. And they seem to have absolutely no intention of uh, ever killing each other. Although Castigear does kind of go, it's getting late in a kind of we may end up having to actually fight each other kind of way. But it feels like if there were the last two left, they'd be like, should we just not fight each other? Just carry on like this? You know? Leave the supreme being where he is. Cheers. See you in another 50 years for another whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to know more about Castigear and the Kurgan and Rachel, who's mm. this little girl that he uh, uh, picks up in Nazi Germany and then raises from a child to a mm. middle-aged woman. And they, we mentioned before that there was a possibility that it got weird after a certain point. Mm. Well, Rachel's blatantly <laughs> in love with him. Mm. But it's, it seems like weird in a not-him-sleezing way. Like, he would have gone, no, you cannot get too close and love me. Especially since I know you as a little girl. It's weird, Rachel. The opposite of Bicentennial Man. Yes. There you go. Yes. It's a longish film, as it is. But I feel like I could have taken a bit more time to get to know more characters. And, uh, you know, if they were ever to attempt this again, getting to know the various immortals is an absolute must. Yeah, well, this is one of the things that I really, really like about it is that there are all these hints at law mm-hmm. and, and stories that feed into this and suggestions that it could have expanded into a huge universe. And then they actually did expand it into a huge universe and it was all bad. Well, it wasn't all bad. I mean, J- Jesse. Liked it. Do you want to give us a few, just a couple of minutes on why the, uh, the the TV series was at the time for some people, including you, worth watching? Yeah, to, to your point, the this movie drops a whole bunch of like snippets and hints of lore that could be in the background, and kind of gives you a need to want to know more about that. And the series picked those up and ran with it. You get a lot of you know it it goes into more detail about how the immortal how different immortals relate to each other mm-hmm. and how some of the mortal world who knows about the immortals relates to them and how they relate back and forth and what it's like for an immortal who doesn't choose the life of solitude you know duncan is sort of the polar opposite of connor in that he has decided that he's going to have family and going to you know make surround himself with companions and people who, you know, who he can relate on and who he can trust and deal with the repercussions of, well, what happens when those people grow old and die? And it, it deals with all of that. It's a lot more emotionally mature. And like I said, the big thing is that it picks up all of those little lore nuggets that you want to know, like the, um, you know, the sensation of what happens when another immortal comes in. It, it didn't occur to me, when I watched the movie the first time that, you know, but it does afterwards that in the very beginning, when he goes down to the garage, he went down to the garage because he felt Mm. the other immortal. He didn't do it just because he was bored. He felt the other immortal. and was like, okay, we've got to go deal with this. It's a little bit Jedi Um, and Sith though. I felt his presence. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it, it, it comes back like going back and watching the movie again after having experienced all of the series, it's it's a fun experience because you do get to pick up on those little extra bits of lore and you get to see like, oh, OK, I see why they did this or, you know, this piece makes sense or this is this piece that didn't really make sense in the movie is explained a little bit better 
in the series later on. Mm. Um, the one thing that struck me when I went through the actual history of Highlander is that none of these five films have ever made money. In fact, all of them have lost money. <laughs> and I get the... How have you made five films if they've all lost money? I do... That's the thing that baffles me. How... Do you go to a meeting where you say, let's do another one? There's a chance we can really make money this time. Let's look at the actual disparity between the numbers. The first one cost $19 million, which was a moderate sci-fi budget back in those days. And it made $13 million, which means that they lost six, if you don't count marketing. Like, they marketed this? That's a, there can only be one. So, like, there won't be a sequel to this one. Like, you, that would never happen yeah, the, these days. the whole ending points to the fact... They won't be any more. They won't be any more. Four films uh, later, <laughs> two TV series, I one don't animation. get how they made a second one. Like, I know that it got, like, a cult following, but a cult following doesn't mean you're going to make loads of, like, like across-the-board general audiences money. A cult following... Like, in the 80s, they didn't really know what a cult following would entail, but they made the next one for not 19 million, but 34 million. That's a huge jump up when you've only got you only made thirteen the first time. They only made fifteen million the second time, which means they lost nineteen million this time. Now, after that, there is no way that they make another Highlander. There's just no way because why? Why would you do it? Highlander one had a relatively straightforward shoot. From the sounds of it, Highlander two had a really troubled shoot. How? I am wondering if that thirty-four million was their starting budget, or whether it, they just get adding to it and adding. To <laughs> oh yeah, I don't think that was the starting budget. My guess would be that they uh, it cost nineteen. The first one cost nineteen million. The second one, they were like, we want we want to build large sets. We're going to set this at twenty-five million, and then they just had to keep adding on and more and more and more. So it went all the way up to thirty-four million, which again is a lot for nineteen ninety dollars. The third one, this is the baffling <coughs> one, cost thirty-four million. What? Like, uh, yeah, have the same money ow. again. Under those circumstances, <laughs> you cut the budget back. You go right. That last one lost I'm a sure, lot of money. Can I'm you sure do Marion the Von Peebles? Isn't that expensive to hire? I was just thinking the same thing about Deborah Carranga. And you don't even have to do the story development because it's just the first film again. It's literally. They, I don't believe they hired a scriptwriter for this. They j- just picked up the script from the first one and changed the names. But like, I don't get how you could waste so much money on the second one and not cut the budget back for the third one. Why are you making a third one at all? But why are you making it for the same price as the inflated price of the second one? And it made thirteen million, losing twenty-one million dollars. Why are you doing this? <laughs> and then Highlander Four, like, how, how did they? How do they do it? How did they do it? I don't get it. Like, I have oh, a- oh, Endgame was hilarious because that's the one that lied, isn't it? That's the one that has the trailer that has loads of cool-looking stuff in it that's <laughs> not in the film. And Edge, I get, I get that. Oh, Edge the wrestler. I get that. Um, if you come into a room and sit down and go, right, the Highlander TV series is making a moderate amount of money, mm-hmm. um, so we can possibly make another Highlander movie. I don't get the fact that, like, they made Highlander 3 when that TV series was already going at that stage, didn't they? Like, it was in its early stages. Clearly, that Highlander 3 was not getting a huge audience because of the TV series. So it feels like the producer must just be so charming that money men just don't say no to him. 
yeah, I know what you mean. It's like this and the crow have one person that desperately hold on to the to the thing, thinking they'll keep money because uh, I can't remember who the crow guy. But apparently, he has a drawer full of bloody scripts for crows, and it's like Jesus, no. There's a reason why Highlander and Crow work as one only film. <laughs> but no, because the producers, the producer on the third film, Claude Leger, uh, was was not the same person as the the two producers on the first film uh, and the second film, which uh, uh, were uh, Peter S. Davis and William N. Panzer. So you got a complete change of uh, um, team for this third film. Andrew Morahan, never heard of him, did this did the third film. So again, who's having this meeting where they say, "Listen, we reckon people now want to watch a Highlander film with." this Highlander from TV meeting this Highlander from the movies and we're going to need 25 million to make it and it made 16 million back losing 9 million again like I don't get how you could keep losing so doggedly and still keep going also if you look at the discrepancy between how much Highlander 3 made and how much Highlander 4 made that is literally just inflation in the price of cinema tickets it's the same audience 13 million 15 million 13 million 16 million it's it's by and large 13 million of those people are the same people a few more Mm -hmm. came in for the the second one because they maybe caught the uh, uh, video of the uh, video yeah I suppose you have video (laughs) rental of the first one and then they left again and didn't come back for the third but the same precise 13 million came back and then a few more came back for Highlander 4 16 million again you say inflation and some people who have caught it on TV but like you have a set audience so suggestion make your Highlander film for 10 million dollars and I think someone said that because the fifth (laughs) film cost 13 million (laughs) dollars and they were like right if we the same thirteen million the come back, amount of money that we expect this to take. <laughs> but it wasn't even released theatrically; it was like a sci-fi channel thing. So whatever and they it got, shows. and it, my God, does it show? It is, it is an abominable mm. film. But whatever they got, orbital, orbital wobble. Whatever they got for that clearly wasn't enough because they haven't declared how much they made for it, and that pretty much like is a death bullet in it. So if you want to know the reason why they haven't remade Highlander yet and they keep remaking everything every year. <laughs> It's because there's only $13 million worth of fans. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Oh, my life. Do any of the others acknowledge two? Very, no, no. no. They, they, no. The Renegade cut that we'll talk about next week, they, they tried to sort of retrofit to work with the other films, mm. which it doesn't. But... The first film suffers from something I'd like to call anti-sequelitis. You know how something like the Tom Cruise version of The Mummy or the original X-Men films are basically like, look, this is kind of a showreel for, like, the world. Like, here is what we do. Come back for more. You know, come and see this in enough abundance, and then we'll make some sequels. Yeah? Like, it's it's real. It's People can detect well, it. People get sick of it and that's how cinematic mm-hmm. universes don't advance beyond that first film sometimes. <laughs> uh, people are very aware when they're being marketed to and the people it's like, sequel? It's like, if you couldn't be bothered to do a film this time around why would I come back for the sequel? Highlander, it's the opposite. They do a really great, complete, concise film the first time around in a way that did not require any sequels and then determinedly kept making sequels and throwing money away. <laughs> like The Crow. Yes. Sorry, it's it's the one franchise that sticks in my head as two films that are complete and you don't really need to carry on anything. And they kept churning out sequels and TV series. And somehow, and I still am lost, is how the hell did Highlander get 
a kids' cartoon show. Yeah, it, set in a really weird future. It was the nineties. They were determinedly making kids' cartoon shows out of really inappropriate R-rated uh, products. We've talked about this before. With was this the, the, the Rambo time show. that the Rambo cartoon yep. was going on, and RoboCop. Oh, jeez. And I, I told you before the uh, the Friday the Thirteenth uh, uh, anime, anime <laughs> cartoon series. I'm gonna I'm willing to bet not a large amount of money, certainly not thirteen million dollars, but maybe thirteen dollars that the major audiences for The Crow and the major audiences for Highlander are about thirteen million worth of a circle in a Venn diagram. <laughs> Same as the Underworld and Resident Evil fans. Those. Uh, um, uh, the, the oh, cage. God. Yeah. You know what's really sad? I kind of like, to some extent, all of those films. That's fine. It's, it's, it's okay to like a movie. <laughs> and actually, I was going to say that, Neil, the Highland is very special to you. For yes. what reason? Uh, this is my one of my dad's one of my dad's favorite films. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time watching this with him, and I always enjoyed watching this film with him. It's one of those few films where I will uh, openly admit to having a blind spot too. I don't see the flaws because this is just reminds me of good times with my dad. So yeah. So it's, it's it, I have a very this film has a very special place in my heart. It's it's something that. You know, it's uh, when I watch this film, I always think, you know, it always reminds me of my dad. And uh, people don't know, I recently lost my mum as well. And there's a film that my mum introduced me to as well that I'm always thankful for and does make me think of, uh, you know, it will make always make me think of her. Although it's, um, oh, I'm not going to lie, it is a better film. Mm-hmm. It's Aliens. Oh, your mum had My mum got me into Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Best mum ever. <laughs> So yeah, um, but yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy this. Like I said, it's a romp. It's it's one of those films that you can throw on, be on in the background, and enjoy what's going on. But you don't. It's the brain off film, but in the good way. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you can just enjoy the ride, and you know, there's always something that's going to entertain you. Whether it's you know, Clancy Brown's Kurgan is just going crazy in the in the modern setting. It's mm. just so entertaining. And then part of you, and something in your brain will just go. By the way, that's Lex Luthor. And you're like, huh. <laughs> He's so much more reined in as Lex Luthor, isn't he? But yeah, no, it, it, it's it's what the film needs. If if the Kurgan was just super serious for the last part of the film, then it would be too self serious. But the Kurgan going yeah. not so like this just makes it embrace that the the, the camp craziness of the Queen soundtrack. So you got mm-hmm. uh, Freddie Mercury screaming out "New York, New York," a song which they've never released to the public because Freddie did not like singing it. But it works ex- extremely well for the. We talk next week about Michael Ironside's train rampage. <laughs> oh, I love the train rampage. The equivalent of the bit with the car rampage in this. The car rampage. It's it's relatively quick. You got Freddie Mercury's singing and some sort of percussive Queen soundtrack in the background to sort of help you along. It's clear that the Kurgan is doing bad things there's a sort of a black streak of humour to it but it's pacey enough to be uh, one and done as opposed to the train sequence which goes on forever and just seems sadistic and absurd and it's actually like it's a little scary Mm. the the this car chase the the train sequence that you're talking about is just ridiculous you're watching it and it's like oh did a baby just fly across the screen but yeah this one you know you're you are terrified for Brenda you're you know you're watching the cars go back and forth and swerving out of the way and you're seeing him freak out and cover his eyes and it does a really good job of putting you in that passenger seat and making you afraid 
Yeah, she's our uh, moral centre uh, next to the, sat next to the Joker. The Kirkin after he shaved his head reminds me of Vivian from The Young Ones. <laughs> Hi, girls. Want to see how many press-ups I can do? <laughs> yeah, but Vivian's uh, stronger than the Highlander because he gets his head knocked off and he's fine. Yeah. Yeah, true. Happy Halloween, ladies. Nuns. No sense of humour. <laughs> this is the house of God. People are trying to pray. You're disturbing them. He cares about these helpless mortals. Of course he cares. He died for our sins. That shall be his undoing. Father, forgive me. I am a worm. I have something to say. It's better to burn out than to fade away. There's a lot of the Kurgan in Sabretooth. Like the way Sabretooth developed in the, in the 80s X-Men and the 90s, like that there is that same kind of sadistic just trying to fuck with the the smaller version of himself that he considers to be like a weaker, younger brother. One of the people that Russell Mulcahy was inspired by, or, or maybe it was the writer mentioned that uh, it was The Duelists, a, a Ridley Scott film, where Harvey Keitel has just become obsessed with finishing this fight and he chases around this guy his entire life because that's all he cares about anymore. That appears to be what the Kurgan's motivated by, but we don't spend any real time with him. You never really get to... There's no point yeah. where the Kurgan talks to anyone about himself. You know? Yeah. And it feels like if they had made the Kurgan someone who absolutely must finish the fight and is obsessed with it, but isn't sadistic, I think that would have made him fascinating. They could yeah, have done a lot more with him, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's great fun and super camp and Clancy Brown, despite the fact... Like, credit to this guy as an actor. He seems to be having the time of his life. He hated playing the Kurgan. He was like, well, why is he doing all this stuff? Yeah, oh. the, uh, if, if you watch all the, the documentary stuff on it, he did not like playing the Kurgan. Oh, they wow. should give out Academy Awards to actors who play roles really, like, super over the top but hate doing it because that's actual acting. That's real. When Leo DiCaprio's eating a bison liver, that's not acting. That's actually doing the thing. Yeah. You bit a piece of raw liver and looked disgusted. You're giving out <laughs> Oscars for that now? That's, 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 I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Oh, one other thing. Uh, in Nash's museum, after the whole Holy Ground thing, um, Brenda goes to Nash and says, right, I've tied this together. 
you appear to be a lot older than you actually say you are. What's going on? If you look very carefully, uh, Ramirez's clothes are in the background. There, there's his hat and his lovely red suit. Now, Connor burned his house down. Did he bury Ramirez's clothes and then dig them up again later? Because it seems like he went off to wander the world after that. Did he carry Ramirez's clothes around in a bag? That's Maybe he's a got a good point. memory and it's a replica. He has Heather's uh, blanket as well. Yeah. The red raggy blanket that she's wearing in the, the snow scene. It's hanging up on the wall. And that is a very good point. When he walks away from the burning house, he doesn't appear to be carrying very much. Yeah. So I think he just like wrapped it in a, in a waterproof blanket and buried it or something. Or put it in a chest and buried it. And then came back and got it later. Or buried Heather with it. No, oh stop. My this has gone really creepy and I don't like Ram- it. Did he bury Ramirez naked? <laughs> I did not think about that when I started talking about this, but Jesus. <laughs> Alex, sometimes you should think before you speak. Okay, Ramirez, you won't be needing these anymore. I'm putting them in my museum of Highlander. <laughs> now for the last. Let yourself feel the stack. It's hot. Reading. Blood. Corsi. Feel? Corn! McLeod, come on! I feel him! Uh, I like the idea that at the end when he talks to her, well done, Highlander, you have done well. That now, because of the quickening with the Kurgan, now I'm in your head forever. You can't get rid of me. I wouldn't use that color on my trousers. Like Welcome just to Lady Slap. He's pretty much stuck in his head. That would be great. But, use uh, the force, Connor. Yes. I, and I'm not, I'm not even a force ghost. I'm literally in your head. You need to go get some Burger King. day setting uh, if uh, a woman was kidnapped and then just uh, tied to a, th- a, a thing and then spent the rest of the movie just screaming for help like Mary Jane that would feel very dated in this it's permissible although actually <laughs> you, you made me think Neil that now your parents in 1986 went well our son's about four years old which two films should we make sure he sees <laughs> oh, this I'm one and this one <laughs> Aliens really makes a lot of sense for a mum to introduce her kids to. Yeah, it's about a a fiercely protective mum. If anything bad ever happens to you, this will be me. Nice. (laughs) Power armor's in the garage. Mm. But uh, but as I said, the final battle section, uh, when uh, it takes place on various different levels, it's like a... a, um, 
a Mortal Kombat level that sort of smashes down <laughs> to different uh, areas. And um, there's a bit where it's like there's lots of electricity and they're waist deep in water. And I'm like, how did nobody die? <laughs> <laughs> Just question. Yeah, uh, and then when you find out that people actually did get injured on the set of the second one, you're like, again, how did nobody die? Same director. Mm. Um, but uh, the the bit where the, the finale of the final battle, when they're set against a large amount of windows, and it's you know it's dark, but it's it's in a giant warehouse. There's a lot of uh, it's a very kind of epic. And then when the, like, the he kills the Kurgan, it's got this kind of like da da da. He's gonna beat him. There's no tension here. Like and and thing like you know your hero's gonna win. And I suppose it's kind of taking the bricks out of the briefcase because it's like we're not even gonna fob you off with will Connor will Connor survive? Of course he'll he, survive. He gets into the I'm about to win this fight stance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> His characterization is not what makes him win in this. It's not something he's learned along the way. It's just that the Kurgan is uh, overconfident mm. in his, mm-hmm. you know, bullish behavior, which which leads him to underestimate Connor at the last moment. So it's it's like this whole thing is designed specifically for teenage boys. And you know, as a teenage boy, when I watched it, I absolutely adored it. I was like, this is, is thrilling stuff. Can't wait to see these sequels. There are two scenes in this film where the Kurgan doesn't kill Connor. Uh The first one where he goes up against him in the Scottish battle and this scene here. And in both, although it's not the final... There's also the alley where they get into a pipe fight and then there's the holy ground, Highlander. Well, yeah, I mean, he's kind of rescued by the we don't fight on holy ground thing there, which, I mean, come on, he's... uh, Right. Forgive me, Father. I am a worm. They don't fight on holy ground because it's tradition, not because, like, (laughs) if you try, God will stab you in the head or anything like that. Do you honestly think the Kurgan gives a whiff about tradition? Yeah. Really? It feels like... He, he's like one of the few villains that does. Bruce right. Payne doesn't. Yeah, true. Oh, God, Bruce Payne. I, I say next week that Michael Ironside might be the worst villain ever, but I didn't no. think of it. By, by, by comparison, Michael Ironside is... Thanos. Comp- oh my god! Is Loki compared to I, I, Bruce Payne? Michael Ironside is awesome. No matter even if he's crap, he's always awesome because he's Michael freaking Ironside. At least no, he's I'm having fun. To, I don't even remember the actor's name because I hate this film more than I hate Highlander Two. I actually yeah. have now grown to like Highlander Two. Ah, that's a development in the past few years. That's because I watched the Source again. Okay. Oh god. Yeah, it'll do that the, to you. The villains just get worse and worse and worse. And in the Source, it's he's. He's singing the theme song. Oh. He's running away in universe, singing "Who Wants to Live Forever." Oh my it's god! Ridiculous. And ridiculous. And Freddie Mercury span in his grave. Mm-hmm. Oh dear. Anyway, to go back to my earlier point. Sorry, show. Connor is saved in both of those instances because he has friends. Mm-hmm. He's the Kurgan is about to decapitate him in Scotland, and Angus and Dougal knock him over. Yes. And there's a point in the final fight, not at the very, very end, but somewhere in the middle, where he is relieved, at least for a brief moment, because Brenda turns up. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. The Kurgan is entirely alone, and ultimately that is what undermines him and causes him to be defeated. And we're getting to the um, Connor and Heather section right now, which is actually a genuinely powerful moment. Like, if you take that out of this film, it is a lot lighter and floppier around the middle. Like, it, yeah. it is in fact so powerful and, 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 and adds so much thrust and emotion to the movie that 
I, I think people like this film and remember it fondly because of this scene. No, I would entirely agree. If you take Heather out of this, you remove two-thirds of Connor's character. Yeah. It's visual storytelling, the, the way that their life sort of plays out and then it sort of cuts to uh, them on the mountainside and she comes back to him, but with grey hair, to illustrate that to Connor, it feels like very little time has passed. Mm-hmm. But uh, she goes old way too quickly, which kind of sets the tone for the whole lonely immortal thing. What we could learn from the film, if there is a message, is that ultimately if you spend eternity alone, it's not something that we're going to have to really deal with, but it does apply to our long lives anyway. But if you spend it alone because you don't want to get hurt, you also don't experience anything. Uh, Brenda pretty explicitly states that as the thesis of the film when they're at the zoo, you know, she's holding Connor's hand and she says, you know, you're not afraid of dying, you're afraid of living. This scene with Heather as she ages mm. and Connor's explicitly saying to her, it, you know, the fact that you are now an old woman, that changes nothing for me. I love you. And that is, that's no different now than it was when we first met. Ramirez laying out for him, you know, your life together will be a tragedy if you stay with her. You can't have children. You you won't grow old with her. You will lose her. In a In a way Ramirez is kind of saying to Connor to protect himself Mm. because he's gone through the same thing and he tells that story about the Japanese princess that he fell in love with and Mm. and it you know broke his heart when she died because the most likely thing that will happen if he gets too depressed is he'll just wander straight into another immortal and say just kill me yeah absolutely but the fact that Connor doesn't do that that he does stay with Heather he lives an entire life with her and the end of that sequence after he buries her is him leaving behind the trappings of who he was. Effectively, he dies. He burns the house down. He leaves his McLeod clan sword. Which stands like a grave post. Absolutely. So yeah. everything that was the Connor who lived in that time is gone. And he goes away and then begins this sequence of him forging new identities, taking on new names and constantly almost reinventing himself through the centuries, which, again, if you compare it with stories about, for the most part, vampires, the way those who do cope with immortality seem to sustain it is by a constant cycle of dying and coming back again and changing themselves and doing things that make them feel like there is some kind of cycle to their life. Hmm. Also, his uh, saying, you know, I love you no matter your age, your, you know, your appearance doesn't make any difference to me, endears us to him. It, it means that he's, uh, you know, he feels more genuine. And so even though he's come off as a bit of an ass throughout the earlier parts of the film, uh, then we then become invested in the lonely version in the future. Mm. But it also, he doesn't take from that bitterness, anger, and, you know, I'm going to take revenge on the world because they, you know, they caused me to go through such pain. They caused her to go through so, so much pain, just transposing that. He, he isn't really an angry guy. He's sad mm. more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And also, he's not really out for vengeance on the Kurgan. And there is a bit in the uh, church, which is quite uncomfortable, where the Kurgan declares proudly... I took his head and raped his woman before his blood was even cold. Then realises Heather was very important to Connor and uses that fact to stick the knife in and twist. Which made me think, oh, this is that thing where like, the worst thing that could ever happen to uh, men is that their women uh, get raped. But you made a really fine point 
about that, which well, is the the way this comes about is it, it's in the scene where Ramirez is killed. Connor's away, and Ramirez and Heather are at the house, and the Kurgan turns up, and after uh, he asks Ramirez about Heather, who is she? And Ramirez says, she's mine. Now, at the time, I've always wondered why he said that, because it's obviously not going to protect Heather. But I think I kind of twigged this time that the purpose is that if he thinks that Heather belongs to Ramirez, he might just have his way with her and then go, rather than if he knows that she is Connor's wife that he might keep her as a hostage, try and use her as bait. Or kill her so that Connell will come seeking revenge. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, there's obviously a reason behind it, but it does mean that you then end up with this uh, confrontation in the church and Connor realising what happened when he'd never known before. Heather had never told him about it. But here's the thing. The whole lifetime that they lived together, we we kind of know that's happened. You certainly do on, on second viewing. Mm-hmm. But Heather is never, ever presented as damaged goods in any way. She has, a, a you know, this, this thing happens to her. She chooses not to tell Connor, and it comes across that that's very much her decision. And she has a life, and she's happy, and she loves her husband. And eventually she grows old and she dies. For that reason, and I'm not saying that that necessarily makes the assault worth it but it it does feel like it's not being used as this sort of you know she's damaged and distorted and that's a way of making connor feel things because he feels so much already his Mm -hmm. his sense of loss over her is is huge and we've already felt that it doesn't necessarily need the exacerbation of this terrible thing happened to her and frankly he was already going to cut the kurgan's head off regardless of that (laughs) But um, but yeah, it does. It, it it for me, it means that that having happened, it, it doesn't feel quite as horrible and twisted as it is often used in narratives. Mm. I also like the message of you can you know live one happy life with one wife, and then effectively as a widower find someone else and be happy with them. That's a good message to send, and the, the idea that that's not a violation of that first partner's trust. Mm, yeah. mm-hmm. And I, d- I would never get the impression that Heather would want him to be lonely. She would mm. want him to go and find. Yeah, she would be very saddened by the him. fact that he did spend hundreds of years alone. Yeah, right. just trying not to uh, get close to anyone. And and the song obviously was incredibly sad watching for the first time and then every time since and became when I saw it, it would have been around the time that Freddie Mercury died anyway so it was tied up in something very melancholy in real world mm-hmm. now if you see the film Bohemian Rhapsody there's a point where uh, Rami Malek plays Freddie finding out about his illness and they play that then oh. and it's a weird Dis, like distorted feedback section because it is really really sad and I'm feeling really really sad about the the real life version of this scene that actually would have played out and you've got Freddie and Brian May's song playing with that wonderful voice but I'm also getting all of the sadness from Highlander heaping into Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> it's so a, it's a bizarre scenario uh, usually when, when that happens in films, I'm like, oh, how dare you use that famous piece of music from another but film? But in this case, so I'm going to allow it. But also right. weirdly inappropriate. I tell you, another weird thing about that song, actually, is that the, the version that's in the film 
is sung entirely by Freddie Mercury. Yeah. The version that's on the mm. soundtrack is Brian May. Yeah. Freddie sings the last, the sort of bridge bit and the last chorus. Yeah. But um, it's not as good. Well, no, because Brian May <laughs> didn't have a voice like Freddie Mercury. So, so yeah, there, there's that to prepare for, folks, if you ever see Bohemian Rhapsody. I've never really known... What? Why you stayed. Because I love you as much now as the first day we met. And I love you. I think it's mainly down to the fact that it's it's not played melodramatically. It's actually... I mean, there's the, the, the music soars up, but the acting is very low-key. They keep it... Um, you know, there's there's a lot of pain there, but you know when they're saying their goodbyes and the the, the actress playing Heather is she she holds it in and they don't there's no wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, she just says where are where are we? And he describes the idyllic Scottish Highland sadly as as she fades. Hmm. Sharon, I've barely given you a chance to talk. Do you, do you want to talk about this scene? Because obviously it wrecks you. It does, every time. And I've seen this film God knows how many times I've been watching it for years. And it's the, 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 the song is definitely the, the trip switch, I think. Mm-hmm. Also, the fact that it's, it's Freddie Mercury singing it and it's, I, I, there is a meta element to the power that that particular track has. Mm. The fact that Freddie died so young and so suddenly and surprisingly, and yeah, ultimately, if you're of a certain age, that was a moment that everyone was sort of as as taken aback as we were in 2016 when Bowie went, just suddenly, mm. phoom, gone. And for very similar reasons as well. You've got um, an artist who has created music that will live forever even though they don't it fits very well with the the idea that even though heather is gone this uh ritual that he has of of lighting the candle on her birthday every year that will live forever that will live as long as he does Mm. so therefore she will live as long as he does in the you don't truly die until your name is spoken for the last time
and let's let's wrap it up now because there's the quickening which I, I said we were going to come back to it's an orgasm it is a great yes. big animated orgasm where Connor goes there can be only one And Alex, come. some of us are wearing headphones. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Hey, he sat right next to me. I'm hearing him in real life. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. Um, and it, it's uh, it's something that carries on throughout the series. And uh, it uh, again, it kind of goes in with the intense feelings of teenage boys. Do they continue with all the demon animations? No, oh they my do God. not. That this is the something only out of- Highlander quickening that has animated demons in it. Like, seriously, you could take this section out and put it in a Fantasia. That's I was how just going to say, it's Night on Bald Mountain. But I really love this sequence because you never get to see like animated demons flying around that are beautifully hand-drawn. There is a charm to the animation of this. And there is a very obscure moment when it suddenly cuts to a papier-mâché head. <laughs> and I think the head was probably supposed to explode, but the effect didn't look very good. But they left the head in. <laughs> I, tell me I'm wrong, Russell Mulcahy. Why did you put the papier-mâché head in? It's worth noting that even the awful, terrible anime Highlander in which the one of the bad guy's heads continues to talk after it's been cut off doesn't feature animated demons in a quickening. Oh. Hang on. An anime had an opportunity to put animated demons in something. And that they didn't. didn't. That's weird. That's restraint I've never heard of before. <laughs> <laughs> That um, helicopter shot around the mountain, though, I was watching that this time, and I was like, "How the hell are they going to get that sword back?" Because they have they mm-hmm. have the fight, and Connor disarms Ramirez. Ramirez, and the Japanese katana falls down the mountain they've just run up, and it's miles. It was priceless, you idiot. <laughs> I think that's I think that's why he's standing that way. Like if you look at as the helicopter crane's going down, yeah, you know Connor's like, "Yeah, all celebratory," and Ramirez is just kind of like almost kneeling he's got an hand on his knee and he's got his head in his hands and he's just like oh god how am i gonna get that sword (laughs) you impaled the deal on its way down oh yeah i can feel it (laughs) next lesson run back down the hill (laughs) what you just said works perfectly like the work that into the film and it's just it's fallen off a whole cliff connor Mm -hmm. dives off the cliff goes underwater finds the sword embedded in stone just sticking straight up (laughs) and pulls it out and it's like a rite of passage and now you're an immortal but it's underwater wow that would have been a great moment because of course that's the sword he ends up going on with yeah right (laughs) and I think on that imagery we're done with Highlander it's uh like I say Sean Connery classes the joint up he's somehow Mm -hmm. like he's definitely by far and away the best thing in the second one even though he lifts right out and shouldn't even be there again though he turns up and goes well I'm not taking this seriously I'm going to have fun not at all I'll give it some scotch um, but uh, in this, he's one of the definite best things. And as you say, it's it becomes more fun when he's there. And as soon as he's gone and dead, it becomes sad and more somber again. So he's the uh, the juicy filling of the sandwich, if you will. And then Clancy Browns decides, I'm going to have fun being the Kurgan now. Yeah. So the Kurgan's the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to leave Highlander there for now, but we will be back next week with Highlander 2, The Quickening, The Renegade Cut, the whichever one you want to watch, you're in for some screwball nonsense. Before we go, gentlemen, where can people find your stuff? Start with Neil. 
I'm found over on the Game Burst podcast, where you can find us every week, bringing you the news on Sunday and a roundtable discussion topic on a Thursday. Just search um, Game Burst in your podcasting listening device. And uh, Jesse, would this film qualify for your time travel podcast? Because technically, Connor is traveling very, very slowly through time. I mean, maybe. There are some theories that we could talk about. Yeah, I could, I'm could. i sure I could find a way to work it in. Hmm. I hear time travel in theory. I want to leave the room. I can feel the headache already. Yes. You should be a guest. I think you'd have a lot of fun. <laughs> Do you remember what, what Alex did to me? He gave me a migraine on the show. It was back to the future. We're, we're I had to. to. <laughs> Our next episode is going to talk about paradoxes, Neil. Oh, major paradoxes. <laughs> but you can find me on uh, Recorded Tomorrow which is a podcast about how to use time travel effectively in fiction. It's available wherever podcasts are found, or you can hit up the Twitter at Time Travel Pod. And we will see you next week for the continued adventures of Connor McLeod as an old gimmer in the far-off year of 2024, the end of the Trump administration. <laughs> this is a Blade Runner-looking future filmed expensively and dangerously in Argentina. It's a kind of magic... I have been Alex Shaw. And I've been Sharon Shaw. And there, there can, can be, be only two.
magic, magic, magic. magic.